Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 239, The Dying Time. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for only about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Ellen, Dave, and Kelly for signing up already. Today we're going to cover five or six years, and we're going to talk about a fascinating theory that, if true, should color virtually everything we know about the life of Alfred the Great. And that's because the life of Alfred the Great might not have been written for Alfred. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The story of this era has largely been the story of kings, warriors, and scribes. We do our best to fill in the gaps and remind you of all the unsung everyday heroes who make life possible and whose thankless work is an intricate part of not just the economic and cultural machinery of the kingdoms of this era, but also an absolutely indispensable part of our history. These unnamed people form the vast majority of our ancestors. Our family lies in the margins of this story. And our family is enormous, which means that the bulk of history, unfortunately, lies in the margins as well. A lot of this show has been an effort at either explaining to you where those blank spots are and why they exist, or doing what we can to fill in some of the gaps. Filling in gaps is my favorite choice, but since I'm just a narrator, that involves relying on the research of experts in the field, and that in turn means that our story has a lot of ifs. It has a lot of mystery. It also means that the research for each episode tends to be painstaking, because no matter how much I read, I always know that there's probably one more article out there, one more treatise that can shed some nuance on the situation or raise a new question. And these questions are important. And actually, the main thrust of this episode hinges on one of them. And the funny thing is that when we talk about these questions, we are moving forward in time. I know that some guys, and it's always guys, complain that we aren't going fast enough, and they want me to hurry up and get to 1066, presumably so they can get an Xbox achievement or something. But the fact of the matter is that the episodes on the more detailed theories of this era actually tend to move forward a lot quicker than the episodes that focus upon battles. But speed aside, when we talk about these theories, it's important that you know it's not wild speculation. It's the result of research, specifically other people's research. I'm just synthesizing it for you and doing my best to put it into a story. And the ifs that come up are the natural consequence of having multiple theories floating around regarding what may or may not have happened in the margins during this period. And the margins are pretty damn big. Because our main written record, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, details history in a way that actually I think would make the bros pretty happy. It's fast, being pretty much a line or two per year. It's focused mostly upon powerful bros instead of all this hippie peasant stuff. And it's simple. No ifs. No questions. Just tell me a simple story where I can imagine that I'm a king and not a french fry technician at the Tasty Freeze. But it's precisely that instinct to tell a simple story that has left us needing so many scholars producing so many theories, and thus so many ifs. Because life isn't simple, not even at the drive through window at Tasty Freeze. 
It's complicated. And much of the vibrant complexity of life gets lost in the simplified Cliff's Notes version of history that the scribes have provided to us. Because all we can see, for the most part, is the king. And even then, it's just sometimes. And it gets worse. Because that focus upon the king casts such a large shadow, it's even difficult to see the nobility. Important eldermen vanish from sight, except for the moments where they're directly in the king's orbit. And even the king's own family vanishes. For example, as we've been talking about all the politicking in the Welsh kingdoms, and the power struggles over Mercia, and the growing Danish threat, Alfred had another child. He had a son. But we don't know exactly when he was born. We know that he was named Athelweird, and we know that, unlike his older siblings, he was sent away to be educated in Latin and the scholarly arts. And perhaps that change in childhood education was because of Alfred's educational reforms, and now this sort of arrangement was expected. Or maybe it was simply that his older siblings were more politically important, so they were kept closer to court. But whatever the case, Athelweird was the only child of Alfred who wasn't educated in court. But here's the kicker. Other than that bit of scholastic history, we don't know much about Athelweird's life. Even when he grows up, he'll be a murky, hard-to-see figure in our history. And that's probably because he was Alfred's younger son, and thus he wasn't all that important in politics. Edward, who was the crown prince, and Athelflaed Lady of Mercia, well, they were the children that soaked up most of the historical limelight in Alfred's family. Their orbit was close enough to him that we can see them. But as for the other children, they get increasingly more difficult to see, even though they're the children of Alfred the Great. It's a cruel reality of the way these accounts were written that they virtually erased just about everyone in history, with the exception of the king and those closest to him. And here's how complete this blind spot is. Do you remember Queen Ailswitha of Mercia? She was the wife of King Burgred and the sister of King Alfred. Well, after Burgred lost his kingdom to Halfdan, the royal couple, well, formerly royal couple, went to Rome. And much like Caractacus, they pretty much vanished shortly after they arrived. Their story largely consisted of crickets from that point forward. We do know that Burgred eventually died, and that he was buried at the Scala Saxonum in Rome. That was the settlement that was established by King Anna of Wessex. So we can guess that that was probably where they lived. But for the most part, that's all we know. And that's sad. There are stories there that we'll never hear. Stories that I really want to hear. What was it like to be a refugee in Rome? What was it like to be on the run? Where did they go first? Who offered them shelter? How did they survive throughout the years? Were they humble and did they work in the Scala as common folk? Or were they still asserting the privilege of their birth? We don't know any of that. And keep in mind that we're talking about King Burgred, the ruler of one of the most powerful kingdoms in the Heptarchy and the scion of the mighty B dynasty. This wasn't a minor side character in history. Similarly, his wife was the daughter of the powerful King Athelwulf of Wessex and the sister of King Alfred the Great. And yet nothing. They both vanish. All we know is that at some point Burgred died and then in 888, Ailswitha also died and was buried at Pavia. So why was she in Pavia? And what did she die of? 
Was she trying to return home after her husband died? We don't know. All of that was lost. And we're talking about the sister of Alfred the Great and the last queen of an independent Mercia. And yet nothing. But that's how it goes. The shadows that are cast by the king are deep. And unless you can catch a scribe's attention, you won't appear in the record. And getting a scribe's attention isn't easy. If you're poor, it's virtually impossible. But even if you're a member of the nobility, even if you're a member of the ruling class, it's still no guarantee. But for as difficult as it was, it wasn't impossible. And one way to make a historic name for yourself was to be part of the ruling class of the clergy. After all, these scribes were typically men of the cloth, so the goings-on in the church was central to their lives. And on the same year that Queen Aelswitha died, so did Archbishop Athelred of Canterbury. And his death was a bit of a problem, because the archbishopric was a major pillar of power in 9th century West Saxon politics. And that seat was proving pretty hard to fill. It seems that the initial choice was Grimbald, one of the most respective scholars on the continent, and actually one of the main candidates for Alfred's scholastic court. But it doesn't look like Grimbald wanted the job. And so they had to search for an alternate. And that takes time. Apparently, about as much time as a U.S. presidential election, because it took two years for a decision to be made. And I'm guessing that, by the time it was done, everyone was just as exhausted as we were last year. But in the end, in 890, the decision was announced. And in this, we might be seeing how much influence Alfred had within the church. Because it was determined that the archbishopric would go to one of the early members of Alfred's courtly school the hermit who had arrived with Bishop Werfuth, Athelstan, and Werewolf. The archbishopric would go to Plegmund. And it would turn out that even though he used to be a hermit, he was really good at administration and politicking. Funny how life works out that way. Anyway, so that's one way you can end up catching a scribe's attention. By being high up in the church and doing something important, like dying at an inconvenient moment. The other way is to directly and drastically impact the king's daily life in one form or another. And one of the best ways to do that was to make war upon him. And that's why we know Guthrum Athelstan so well. Here was a man who exploded into our story by supporting Halfdan's attack. Then he seems to have consolidated power and ousted the other two Viking kings he arrived with. But he truly dominated our story when he launched a daring sneak attack into Wessex, then followed it up with another sneak attack. And then when that one didn't work out, and he was forced to retreat into Mercia, he launched another sneak attack, and this time he had managed to seize the Kingdom of Wessex. And if it wasn't for the fact that Alfred and Athelmoth were apparently savants at guerrilla war, we might be talking about the House of Guthrum rather than the House of Wessex. But the point is that Guthrum was a masterclass in how to get into the historical record. However, all of that was a long time ago. Since then, Alfred and Guthrum had become spiritual kin. Treaties had been signed normalizing relations between their kingdoms. Guthrum has pretty much fallen out of the record because he was no longer the raiding firebrand he was over a decade ago. Now, he was a king. An aging one. And in 890, life finally caught up with Guthrum Athelstan. And he died. In his place... 
an unknown Dane by the name of Eric succeeded to the throne. Little is known about where King Eric of East Anglia came from and who he was. For us, the early years of King Eric are a black box, and consequently, we don't know if Alfred was already getting a sense that Eric was going to turn out to be a king who was more like younger Guthrum and less like older Guthrum Athelstan. But I suspect that in Winchester, word of Guthrum's death would have caused Alfred a bit of anxiety. Though I also don't think that too many people were mourning his passing. About a century later, when the historian Athelweird, now he wasn't the same person as Alfred's son, yet confusingly, he was actually a descendant of Alfred's brother. Well, anyway, when Athelweird was writing his account of Guthrum's death, he couldn't resist the chance to lob some shade at him, saying that in the end, Guthrum breathed his soul out to Orcus. And Orcus was the Roman god whose job it was to punish those who broke their oaths. So even about a century later, the House of Wessex was still a bit sore about how Guthrum broke his oaths to Alfred, and were hoping that a pagan god would punish him for it. So I guess Athelweird wasn't buying the baptism and name change. But all of these deaths meant that this was a dodgy few years. And also, for Alfred, a time of loss. He was 41 years old. It had been decades since his parents had died as well as most of his siblings. But with the death of Queen Ailswitha, now all of his siblings had gone to join his parents. He was the last of his childhood family. Furthermore, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who had served in that role since before Alfred had taken the throne, was dead, as was his godson and pacified Danish ally, Guthrum Athelstan. Everything was in motion, People he had known for large portions of his life were dying. Everything was changing. And change can bring a lot of instability. And almost as if it was on cue, in about 891, Alfred's sub-king in Devid, King Hypheth, the king who had given Asser so much trouble, also died. He left behind two sons, Hliwark and Rodri. But while the line of succession was secure, that was no guarantee of a continuing peace and prosperity in the West. The fragmented nature of the Welsh kingdoms and the tense relationship between David and Ceredigion would have been a point of worry for the developing West Saxon hegemony. For over 12 years, they've had relative peace in Wessex. There were the occasional battles, but nothing on the scale of what Wessex had seen when Alfred was a young man, or even when he was a child. His kingdom was enjoying a rare moment to catch its breath. And in that time, Alfred had been working to rebuild the South. He'd been consolidating power, shoring up defenses, and rekindling intellectual life. The work that he and his subjects had engaged in for over a decade had resulted in a carefully constructed bulwark against the Danes. And in the few attacks they'd endured in recent years, it had proven to be quite effective. But if Alfred was paying attention to his studies from his Mercian tutors, he likely would have learned that the previous hegemonic structures in Britain had collapsed due to instability or the wrong person dying at the wrong time. This peace and the firm dynastic control that he'd been building was fragile. It could be broken. And what if God wasn't happy with what he'd been doing? What if that was why the archbishop died? 
Or what if the Southern Welsh fell into infighting and were annexed by the Northern Welsh and their Danish allies? Given all that Alfred had endured, all that Wessex had endured, I imagine that these questions must have been on their minds. But life must go on. And if God was unhappy, then Alfred would have to work all the more to develop his kingdom's spiritual armor. Wisdom. And so it's no surprise that as all of this was happening, our favorite monk from southwest Wales, Asser, was riding. Actually, it wasn't just Asser. Alfred had mobilized his entire courtly school into riding. He had determined that it was no good to teach his nobles how to read if they didn't have anything worth reading. So he had the learned men of his court translating books, quote, most necessary for all men to know, end quote, into Old English. And Alfred wasn't just sitting on the sidelines. He was paying close attention because he wanted to try his own hand at this task as well. But meanwhile, Asser had another task. He wasn't just translating things. He was writing an original work, The Life of Alfred the Great. And what he produced during this phase of his life is a remarkable and indispensable source for this period, and not just because of what it tells us directly, but also for what's implied in his writing. For example, by looking at the context and style of the writing, some scholars have argued that while Alfred no doubt would have known what Asser was putting together, the intended audience might have gone beyond simply the king and his court. See, the thing is that Asser spends time explaining things and discussing things that Alfred and the West Saxons would already have known. Now, for contrast, look at the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Now, that was pretty clearly written for the West Saxons, at least the ones who could read. And it focuses pretty much exclusively on the what and the when. But Asser's book, well, that includes far more detail and asides, explaining, well, who this guy was and who his people were and how they operated. And that difference has led some scholars to suspect that Asser wasn't writing to the West Saxons. He was explaining Alfred and the West Saxons to the Welsh. But why tell the Welsh about a West Saxon king? Why include all this extra detail with the purpose of providing it to the people of his homeland? And let's assume that Asser wasn't live journaling, that he wasn't just putting it out there and talking to anyone who would listen. And that is a possibility. Simply because Asser was writing before the days of blogs doesn't mean that the instinct to share your life without any purpose didn't exist. Asser might have been a sharer. Hell, given Alfred's butt stuff and sexual appetite, he might have been an oversharer, just like his liege. But let's assume that this wasn't just random journaling to his friends back home. And instead, he was writing with a purpose to the people of Wales. Why would he do that? Well, Asser leaves us little breadcrumbs that point to a possible answer. Scholars like Edwards have noted that sprinkled throughout Asser's account are indications that Alfred's goal in Wales wasn't the southern Welsh kingdoms, but rather it was the north and central kingdoms held by the sons of Rodri. And you might be asking why. Well, let's go through the facts. The Battle of Conway had weakened Mercia which very well could have played into Alfred's hands, making it easier for him to annex the Midland Kingdom. However, it had also resulted in the Kingdom of Gwyneth gaining its independence, along with its subservient kingdoms. And unfortunately for Alfred, the sons of Rodri had turned out to be energetic monarchs who sought to expand their position with the same sort of ferocity that Alfred tended to do. 
And that was a problem for Alfred, because it meant that when Mercia fell under his command, Greater Gwyneth didn't come with it. Furthermore, the Northern Welsh were capable warriors who had defeated the Danes in battle, just like the West Saxons had done. If things went sideways, these would be formidable enemies. But if they could be brought under his control, they would be highly beneficial subjects. The trouble, though, was that there was a huge obstacle to any sort of West Saxon Gwyneth alliance. The sons of Rodri were already allied with Northumbria. And that didn't just deny Alfred the chance at a militarily powerful ally. It also created a situation where his northern neighbors might at any point launch a combined assault upon the south. And given his experiences with Halfdan and Guthrum, I'm sure that Alfred was worried about another invasion. Especially since now he had another flank to worry about in East Anglia, with the death of Guthrum. But luck was on his side the Northern Welsh were chafing under their new alliance. Asser doesn't tell us exactly what the issue was, but the sons of Rodri were discovering that their new allies were no better than enemies, and they were looking for relief. And Alfred must have grinned like a wolf when he caught word of the weakening alliance. This was exactly what he needed. By bringing North Wales into his orbit they might be able to present a power block large enough to counter the growing threat from the Danish-held lands. Lands that over a hundred years later would become known as the Dane Law. So Alfred wanted Gwyneth. And we know that because here's what Asser tells us about how Alfred reacted when the sons of Rodri came to his court. Quote, Anarod, son of Rodri, with his brothers, at length abandoning the friendship of the Northumbrians, from whom he had received no good, but rather harm, came into King Alfred's presence and eagerly sought his friendship. The king received him with honor, adopted him as his son by confirmation from the bishop's hand, and bestowed many gifts upon him. Thus, he became subject to the king with all his people, on condition that he should be obedient to the king's will in all respects, in the same way as Athelred and the Mercians, end quote. Now, most scholars focus upon the comparison of their terms to those that were accepted by Athelred and the Mercians. And I'm sure that you have some thoughts on it. For example, Mercia was annexed, with Athelred acting as a mere elderman. So you might be thinking that Alfred was seeking total domination of Gwyneth. And you might have a point. But it's very important to look at the entire entry from Asser. And one line in that entry in particular jumps out to me. Quote, The king received him with honor, adopted him as his son by confirmation from the bishop's hand, and bestowed many gifts upon him. End quote. The gifts are great and all, but the biggest aspect of this is the fact that King Anarod became King Alfred's adopted son, and it was confirmed by the Church of Rome. If this reminds you a bit of Athelred and how he was given London and married Alfred's daughter, you're not alone. Much like with the Mercian annexation, we're looking at an act of dynastic union. Now looking at it in total, it's pretty clear that Alfred was looking to annex Gwyneth and bring the sons of Rodri Mauer directly into his orbit, perhaps even bringing them directly into his court. Granted, he didn't marry his daughter to Anarod, but he did the next best thing. And no matter which way you slice it, it seems that Gwyneth really was what Alfred wanted in Wales. 
None of the other kingdoms got this deal. And that brings us back to Asser's writing. When he completed his Life of Alfred the Great in 893, Asser was writing about a largely illiterate kingdom that wouldn't have been able to read it even if they wanted to. And he was explaining things that most West Saxon nobles would already have known. And beyond that, he was also reading in Latin, which most of the West Saxons couldn't even understand, even if the book was read out loud to them. So, why write it? What's the point? Perhaps the point was that he was writing to the intelligentsia in Wales. By the time that Asser actually wrote his book, all of Wales had submitted to Alfred. And that might not have been sitting all that well with many of the people in the West. There were centuries of animosity between the Welsh and the English. And like with much of this period, the real story is in the margins. And the story in the margins is the story of hegemonic expansion into regions that spoke a different language, had a different culture, had suffered enslavement, and had been embroiled in armed conflict with the Anglo-Saxons for generations. Their history was littered with atrocities committed by these people. And even worse, they were religious atrocities committed in a time where most people were deeply spiritual. Furthermore, many of the men of letters tended to be from religious orders, so those atrocities would have had an especially personal flavor for them. And as a consequence, it's unlikely that, say, the massacre at Bangor would have been easily forgotten by the learned men in Wales. And these were the same people who often were advising the kings. So how do you get them to stay in line? How do you get them to accept that now Wales would be on the same side as Wessex? Well, one theory is that Asser was attempting to bridge that gap. He was telling them about this king that he was serving, which also happened to be the king that they were now serving too. And there are many aspects and reasons behind why Asser would have written the life of Alfred. And we may never know truly what was in his heart. Scholars have all sorts of theories, and many of them focus on the propaganda aspect. But at the same time, many of them slavishly focus upon the English when they talk about the target of that propaganda. But I think that Charles Edwards has a point with his analysis on the subject, tone, and language of what Asser was writing. The Welsh were, at the very least, one of the intended audiences, and likely the main one. Presenting Alfred as a form of King Solomon might have been Asser's attempt at breaking through the animosity, telling his countrymen that this king was worth serving. And he was also telling them that service came with its own rewards. Because here's what Asser said directly after he detailed King Anarod's submission. Quote, Nor was it in vain that they all gained the friendship of the king. For those who desired to augment their worldly power obtained power. Those who desired money gained money. Those who desired his friendship acquired his friendship. Those who wished more than one secured more than one. But all of them had his love and guardianship and defense from every quarter, so far as the king, with all his men, could defend himself. End quote. That's a hell of a sales pitch, isn't it? And it's oddly reminiscent of Nick Cave's red right hand. And if you don't believe me, you don't owe no money. Get you You don't have no 
See what I mean? I've always felt like this song was about the devil, but maybe it's just about Alfred. And Asser follows it up, talking about all the lands and gifts that he had personally received from Alfred. He even goes so far as to mention that in addition to all the lands and stuff, he gets gifts from Alfred on a daily basis. It very much feels like Asser was saying, you guys, he is totally not like the others. He's interested in learning, he's surprisingly smart for a Saxon, and he gives excellent gifts. And just in case his audience thought that he was laying it on a bit too thick, Asser adds, quote, But let no one suppose that I have mentioned these presents in this place for the sake of glory or flattery, or to obtain greater honor. I call God to witness that I have not done so, but that I might certify to those who are ignorant how profuse he was in giving, end quote. So now God's being brought in to certify that, yes, Alfred gives the greatest gifts, and he just wants you to know about that. So yeah, this life very well might have been propaganda, as many scholars have suggested. But it's quite possible that it was primarily directed at a different population than many earlier scholars have assumed. And Alfred and his court were actively working to keep Wales within the growing West Saxon hegemony. And he needed Wales, because the Danes were still in Britain. And who knows what this new King Eric of East Anglia, or King Guthred of Northumbria, were going to do. And they weren't the only threat to the south. Across the channel, that group of traveling Vikings who had been wrecking the continent were still looking for a new conquest. And it seemed that it was just a matter of time before they'd finally return across the channel and strike Britain. And it turned out that time was now. Ships were sighted on the horizon. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. Find us at British Podcast. And you can join all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. On a gathering storm comes a tall, handsome man in a dusty black coat with a red right hand.